Hey everyone, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by The Influencer Economy, my upcoming book about creativity and thriving and sharing your work in the modern economy. Please go to InfluencerEconomy.com for more information. I have reverse engineered the careers of people like Bill Simmons, Chris Hartwick and Nerdis, the Vlog Brothers, as well as Freddie Wong to show their business steps for how to launch any idea in the modern media age. I've already put all the interviews up online. You can check it out at InfluencerEconomy.com. And if you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe. Hey, welcome to the podcast this week. This is Ryan Williams. My guest is Derek Sivers for episode number 79. Derek is a musician, programmer, writer, entrepreneur, and student. Derek originally was a professional musician playing in New York City. And in 1998, he founded the technology startup CD Baby, which became the largest seller of independent music online with over $100 million in sales for 150,000 musicians worldwide. In 2008, 10 years later, Derek sold CD Baby for $22 million, giving the proceeds to a charitable trust for music education. He's a well-known speaker at the TED conference with over 5 million views of his talks. One of my favorite videos of his is uh, called How to Start a Movement – where Derek analyzes a guy at, at a party in a field watching a music festival. The guy is extremely inebriated and out of his mind, dancing. And what he, Derek talks about is how we all need to be followers, not just leaders, and how your first follower can often catalyze any movement. And this it rings true for really any online movement, that you need to follow people, not just lead. Derek is a recent father. We talk a lot about business, life, creating value for others, and giving to people in business. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you're listening in iTunes, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. An honest re review really helps a lot with people finding the podcast. And if you're interested in signing up for the email list, hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com, and I'll send you a free guidebook for how to start a podcast. So without further ado, please welcome Derek Sivers. <laughs> I sold CD Baby in 2008. And I think anybody listening to this, you're going to have different phases in your life where different things are important, right? You're going to have times in your life when you're pursuing money, or the times in your life where you're pursuing skill, say for people often, like if you're at college or something, you're just working just on your knowledge and your skills. Your time at college is not about making money. Uh, You'll have times in your life when you're focused on romance and <laughs> just being in love with somebody or finding somebody to be in love with or whatever. You're going to have times in your life when you're focused on freedom or intellectual stimulation. So I think that um, times change and we have to update our priorities. Often just note, sometimes because of external circumstances like, you know, pregnancy, but sometimes it's just something runs its course, you know, like for me, making money was something that I had been very focused on from the age of, let's say, 18 to 38. And so, yeah, so I sold CD Baby for $22 million And I had to break the habit of doing things for money because I'm not even going to be able to spend that much in my lifetime. So it's, sometimes it's hard to get out of the habit of doing things for the money or to be focusing on profit or to think of how, how can I make this profitable? It's really hard to stop doing that after 20 years of being focused on that. So, um, so no, I already kind of made a point of, uh, not focusing on profit anymore. I do believe it's a good secondary goal. It's a good, uh, neutral indicator that you're being of value to other people. And people don't open up their wallets to pay you unless you're doing something of value to them. So it's a good way to make sure you're being valuable to the world is make sure that you're uh, making money, being profitable. But as a primary focus, no, it, it hadn't been a primary focus anyway. When uh, my girlfriend said that she was pregnant and we were going to have a kid, um, it was just nice timing for me that I was at a time in my life when I could basically take a mini sabbatical or retirement, whatever you want to call it, and just be full-time dad. And how old were you when you sold CD Baby? And then how old were you when you had your your, your baby, your, uh, actual, let's your see. actual baby? Sold CD Baby when I was 38. Um, had a kid when I was 42. So you'd spent uh, 20 years 
you know, using the age of 18 just as a guise for thinking about money after college or thinking about getting a job after college, in college. What, it's 20 years of life living that you had under your belt focused on making money. So at that point, you had reached a, a level where you could focus your priorities because that ending of that time, you know, it, you segued into the next part of your career. What about people that are listening? Like what kind of thoughts do you have on like what you've learned that you had to go through the ups and downs of a business and to get to the point where you could actually prioritize your fatherhood over making money? Well, don't forget, you can always, you're always in control of your life. People like to do this victim thing, um, saying like, well, no, I can't do this and I can't do that and I have to do this and I have to do that. But somebody called me out on that years ago and in a really powerful way when I was back when I still had my company and I was feeling really frustrated with it. I had 85 employees, mostly reporting directly to me. And it was just, you know, <laughs> 99 problems. And I was complaining and complaining. And I Has- said, I'm sick of it. first world problems. Right, exactly. Uh, and I was complaining and I said, well, I have to do this and I have to do that. And he said, well, you don't have to do anything. I said, uh, yeah, I do. I have to pay my employees. I have to pay my taxes. I have to ship out orders when customers pay for them. I have to do this stuff. He said, no, you don't have to do this. I said, yes, I do. He said, no, hold on. I'm not going to let this one go. You need to understand this. He said, you got to make sure that you, you remember that you don't have to do anything. If you don't do it, there are consequences, but you don't actually have to do anything. You could right now just disappear and go to Bali and not tell anyone your phone number and stop answering your mail and disappear. He said there would be consequences. Like when you return to the U.S., there might you know, your employees would quit. Your company would lose some reputation. Some people would tell their credit card companies that their order was never shipped and that the credit card companies would penalize you for not shipping it. There might be a couple lawsuits when you get back for employees that feel that you owe them money for time that they worked and you didn't pay them. But you actually can just disappear if you don't mind the consequences or if you're willing to pay the consequences. But he said, you need to always make sure, no matter what happens in your life, that you know that you don't have to do anything. You are the boss of your life at all times, even paying taxes. Yeah, the government will charge you interest and come after you to eventually pay it. But yeah, you, you could even skip out on paying your taxes for five years if you're just you really don't want to for some reason you just have to pay it eventually or or go to jail for a while you know so i think this is a really important thing for anybody listening that we all have a tendency to often feel trapped you know trapped in a relationship trapped in a company trapped in a job but it's it's a good reminder to know that you don't have to do anything so when you left cd baby did you feel like at that point you were going to start traveling and that you that was your next agenda item and also i guess you know diving deeper you're you're very prolific at just writing consistently and you wrote a book about your experience and with CD baby and your overall viewpoint and what i guess i look at this as someone who's creating a book and i've had my own businesses and i'm now 38 so i've lived enough life where i feel like i can express myself and it took me a long time to get to this level and years of therapy. Um, but uh, I, th- I think that uh, for, for your vantage point, when did you realize, you know, you talk about learning and, you know, in this conversation even about, you know, what you've learned for prioritizing fatherhood over business and where you got to that level. Um, but where in your life did you learn like, okay, I'm okay to express myself about this? Did you have to reach a certain level of success where you felt that was the right decision? Good question. Um, you mean just about writing and sharing? Yeah, you're, you're, like you're, you're consistently writing and your blog and okay. website and even the books you've CD Baby, the book can you, uh, that I have, it's, is that a photo of you in the sand? Uh, with your... <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, Seth Godin actually chose that cover. That's not me. Um, the, okay, so the original question of like putting yourself out there and writing and sharing advice. I don't, I think I first felt that I could do that because I had already been a pretty successful musician. And here I was starting 
this online record store with a whole bunch of musicians asking me questions about how to be successful. So I thought, okay, well, I'm not Mick Jagger, but I know a few things. I've, I've made, I don't know, 200,000 bucks gigging. I bought my house with the money I made gigging. I can tell you how to get into the college circuit. I can tell you how to do this. I, I got myself a distribution deal. I got this. Like, I can tell you how to do these things. So at first it was really just me sharing very specific advice with musicians. And then people would ask me more general questions about business. Once I had had a successful business, how did you do that? How did you do this? How did you keep your business on track? So it's more just people often ask you questions. Um, I guess it starts with that. And then I still, if I find that conversationally, if I've brought something up among friends or in a conversation with a friend or even in an interview like this that people find very interesting, then I'll note it and I'll probably write about it later because I think, okay, that sounds like it's useful to other people. Point is, the ultimate goal of all of this is just trying to be useful to other people. It would be very easy to lay low, keep your head down, hide out, (laughs) take it easy, and not put your ass on the line by writing or producing anything and putting it out into the world. But that's not very useful to others. You know, and I think a lot of people lay low and then they wonder why the world isn't rewarding them with cash or fame or whatever it may be, because you really have to put your ass on the line to keep putting stuff of value out into the world. Um, so I, I just keep challenging myself to do that. It, it would be very nice and easy to just lay low, but I try to keep the public, do things for the public and in public because it's more useful to others. And you and you live in New Zealand, and you could reach right. people, okay. you so could yeah, reach people, you could reach people yeah, globally yeah. without having to leave your kitchen. Right. So first, let's give a little context for that. So just a few years ago, I was living in Santa Monica, and I had no interest in travel because Santa Monica is fucking awesome. And I felt like I was at the end of the rainbow. Like, this is the most amazing place in the world. I love it here. I was so comfortable. I was so happy. I absolutely loved Santa Monica. I, I used to live at 26th and Wilshire in Santa Monica. I love it. It's just all of I lived at 4th and Ocean Park. Well, 3rd in California and then 4th and Ocean Park. You can't go wrong at 3rd in California. Yeah, so cool. I just love that whole area. Just go, you know, I'd sit there working all day and whenever I'd get a little... Uh, break in my work, I would just grab my boogie board and jump into the ocean for a little bit and come back. And Yeah. So when I caught myself feeling that Santa Monica was the end of the rainbow, I realized that it value, it violated a core value of mine, which is to constantly learn and grow and to expand out of my comfort zone, right? So when I pictured myself living in the same place for 50 years, like, yep, I love Santa Monica. This is where I'm going to live until I die. I realized that, no, in fact, what I really want out of life is the opposite. Like, Ideally, I would love to live in an uncomfortable place until I'm comfortable and then move again. So let me give a little example. When I was 20 years old, I moved to New York City. And having grown up in little Hinsdale, Illinois, New York City was fucking scary. Not just because I was 20. I grew up in Hinsdale, Illinois. Okay. Not only was New York scary, but also it was 1990, and crime was a lot higher then. This is before the gentrification of Times Square. It was a much more dangerous place. It was seedy, yeah. You had Times Square with a lot of like strip clubs and... Oh, yeah, it was all all like porno... Or... Yeah, porno, wino, skid row, all that kind of stuff, yeah. Um, so when I first moved there at 20, it was terrifying and overwhelming. And slowly over the course of two years, it became comfortable. Like all my friends were there. I worked there. I worked in Midtown. Just by going to places and parties and gigs, I ended up walking down practically every single street in Manhattan. Like I know every neighborhood. And within a year and a half, two years it became my comfort zone. And so now I look at New York City and just like, ah, New York, ah, so good to just be back in my comfortable place. You know, <laughs> and it's, it's really cool that I earned that comfort. That's not immediate comfort. That's like growing into 
a new expanded self-definition and understanding of the world. And that, that's just a deeper happiness, right? It's kind of funny that we, we use the same word happy, whether we mean like really shallow, immediate gratification or this deep, deep happiness that comes yeah. from uh, doing something difficult and earning it, right? Okay, so that's my New York City example. But now imagine what scares me next. Uh, let's say Rio de Janeiro. Like the idea of living in Brazil with Brazilians and having to learn Portuguese and all of the, the crime and the inequality and the, the outgoing affectionate people there and that kind of very outgoing culture that kind of makes me recoil a little bit. Like imagine living in Rio until it really feels like home. Like you speak fluent Portuguese, all your friends are there. It's as comfortable as any place you've ever lived in your life. It becomes your total comfort zone. And then you move somewhere else. Let's say you move to Shanghai. Hey everyone, thanks for checking out this week's episode with entrepreneur, writer, and creator Derek Sivers. Make sure you check out his website, sivers.org, S-I-V-E-R-S.org. And also reminding you, this happened via Skype. I was in LA and he was in New Zealand. So it was amazing to get him on the show. And if you like other entrepreneurs like Derek, please check out last week's episode with Paul Jarvis, who's a, a self-published best-selling author. And before that, I had James Altucher on the show, who's equally a self-published best-selling author. And Troy Carter, who's an investor in L.A. and former talent manager for Lady Gaga, in addition to Jank Younger of the Young Turks or some other old episodes, which you may love. All of them are on iTunes, or if you want to go check out InfluencerEconomy.com, you can hear everything in its entirety as well. We have... 80 episodes with interviews of makers, creators, and entrepreneurs for your listening pleasure. Now back to Derek. Because when we were scheduling this conversation, you were traveling for a couple weeks and months this summer. Yeah, I, so I became a legal resident of Belgium uh, recently. So I also live part-time in Brussels. So I was in Brussels for the summer Um and then came back to New Zealand for, you know, summer is just beginning now. It's uh, October and, you know, the seasons are opposite down here. So October through April is a wonderful time to be in New Zealand instead of somewhere else. Sounds like another rainbow, like Santa Monica. Yep. <laughs> um, so you mentioned prior to, or actually just a few moments ago about the your book cover that Seth Godin helped advise you on. Um, what type of people give you advice and is Seth one of those people? Actually, no. You know, I turn to books for advice. I prefer books because they're detached. And they remind me that the general advice applies to me too. Um, what I mean is I think we, we all tend to think that we need a personal mentor, like someone who will know all the nuances and details of our situation and can then give us advice of, of based on everything, right? My, my mom is asking me about mentors all the time. It's really? almost like this generation gone by that when you had a job for 30 years, you most likely had a mentor at work. Right. Well, I get lots of requests to be a mentor to people too, and I have to say no, sorry. Like, But to me, okay, if you think that you need somebody to know all of your nuances and details in order to give you advice, well, the reason they're called details is because they're small and they're distracting. I th we get so focused on our personal details that we lose sight of the big picture. Yeah, totally agree. I think that's why the advice that you give others, like even when your friend asks you for advice, the advice you give others is often better than the advice you give yourself because you can't see all of their details. You can actually see the big picture in others. You're not confused by all of those inner conflicting thoughts that they're having. You can look at it from the outside and see the bigger picture. So that's actually why I prefer my mentors to be books, because they don't know any of my details. So therefore, they remind me of the big picture and the universal truths, and they remind me to downplay my personal details. So no, I've actually, I don't have any mentors, just books. Yeah. When I ask for people for advice, sometimes I get, it's mostly I have some anxiety about my details that I'm worked up about. And then people broadly can give you advice, but you're right. Books, they're agnostic. They're non-judgmental. 
uh-huh. yeah. their, their uh, anecdotes or just straight up, you know, advice actions you can take. Um, but then, what kind of books have you have you recently read that you could recommend people? Oh man, okay. Anybody listening to this, if you actually want my book recommendations, you are in luck because if you go to sivers.org/book, just s i v e r s dot org slash b o o k you will see the last 225 books i've read oh, with nice. detailed notes and summaries and every single one of them i've given a 1 to 10 rating or maybe 0 to 10 yeah anyway given a 1 to 10 rating and if you go to sivers.org/book my top recommendations are at the top each one with a little explanation of why i recommend it um and a link to amazon if you want to buy it or whatever and I just, this was something I've actually been doing for myself for years and just keeping it privately on my laptop is every time I would read a book, I would take detailed notes on that book because I wanted to review my notes later instead of having to reread the whole book. I just wanted to reread my notes of just the most interesting bits from that book. So you've open sourced so, your, your reading catalog. Yeah, so exactly. So this was on my laptop for years just for myself. And I thought, you know, there's no reason why I can't just put that out on the website. So yeah, servers.org slash book is uh, tons of notes from books and I'm constantly adding to them um, every month. So those are my top recommendations. And when you write a, a book yourself, what do you find are some topics and themes that you, you know, or first of all, I guess, stepping back, do you, since you read books for advice, then do you write books for advice to give out uh, to people? Uh, yes. Good question. Um, I'm working on a project now. Uh, if you look at my blog, um, you'll see the, a recent blog post is called uh, Just Tell Me What to Do, Compressing Wisdom into Directives. Yeah, well, I, I really resonate with that, actually. As oh, thanks. As someone who's writing a book. Cool. Um, I really like this subject because I've found that a lot of books I read talk around subjects a lot, or they spend 350 pages giving you all kinds of supporting evidence and anecdotal stories and all kinds of arguments. But what if you already trust the source and you don't need to hear all the damn arguments? You just want somebody to like give, you know, skip all of the arguments. Just give me the point. Tell me what to do. So I found that this is what would happen when I would tell some of my friends about some amazing book I had just read, right? Like I finish a book and I say, oh my God, that was awesome. And I call my friend and I say, Ali, you have to read this book. And Jeff, you got to read this. And my friend Jeff will say, dude, you know me, I I'm never going to read the book. So just tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. Like he trusts me because he knows me and I know him. Uh, so he trusts me as an authority that saying that if I said this book is amazing, he doesn't need any supporting arguments. He just wants to know what does it say he should do? What, what can he apply to his life? Cause isn't that really the point of everything that we're reading for, for knowledge or self-improvement is we want to know what actions are we actually going to take to change something? So I'm now doing a project of going back through seven years of 220 book notes and trying to compress them into specific advice saying, do this, do that. It's a fun project. And these are books you've already written that were, do you think you look back that these are the right books to write at the time because you were at a certain place where maybe. Oh, no, sorry. These are books that I've read in the past. Oh, no, oh I've books only you've read. really written one book, just that book, anything oh, that's you want. It? I thought you, and you have an upcoming book. Um, no, that's it. Um, I've, I published 36 books about 16 countries in Asia. Uh, sorry, 33 books oh, right. about okay. 16 countries in Asia. And actually, wait, to be fair, hold on. Uh, like about 10 years ago, I did do a book for musicians called uh, How to Call Attention to Your Music. That was more of just like an ebook, but was never released on a publisher. That's just something I've been sending to musicians for years. So no, this is... Um, I'm talking about going back through books that I've read. Interesting, because I, I took it that you were going through past books because your website itself is like a journal, and you right. have so many entries. I thought maybe more of those stories were published in books. Nope. Almost none of them. Because uh, the impression I get is that you're writing continuously, and a lot of times you link to certain parts of your website. to Like, for example, 
your book you're you're like making an imdb for your personal book collection it's like (laughs) i mean you totally this is like a product here that you could have a search engine like looking up like what did derek you know what does he think about helping people and it's like i read give and take by adam grant and i took these three Mm -hmm. things away you can buy it if you want but these are you know be a giver (laughs) right well i i love the fact that it all can link together that yeah because i put this all on my site then when I'm making some new point in the future, if I'm writing a short little essay, I like the fact that I can keep my articles really short, succinct, and punchy, something you can read in under two minutes, because that's how most people read. They're just, you know, quickly, while they're grabbing a sandwich at work or something, they surf the web for a little bit. They're not going to put aside 45 minutes to read an article online. So I try to keep my things posted online to under two minutes and just making one point each. But then how nice to be able to link away if you want more information. Like here's, here's an idea I'm mentioning. If you, if you really want to dive into that subject, here's this book. Um, but, you know, if you don't want to dive into that subject, that's fine. You don't need to. I like that. Yeah, I've uh, reached a point with my book where it's actions. What, what, can, what can I take? What can I give to people? What can I, yeah. give, what, what can I arm people with that helps their company and gets them to a level where they can explain it more easily or brand it better. But I think in so often you stop reading books because they are all case studies and anecdotes, but the the calls to action, it's almost like if you could, Amazon should make a product where you can annotate books and you can do an e read an ebook and annotate. And actually, if you choose to participate like a Google doc, you can Mm -hmm. track people's changes to add sort of footnotes um, uh, where people are like, actually, I did this from this advice because, you know, so often even with books, I'm sure like the book you wrote, people have probably taken action from it. Um, do you do you hear back from a lot of readers actually from uh, your your folks that have taken something that they've learned from you and some advice that you've put into a book or that now you're helping clarify from other books? Like, do people reach out to you and say, hey, I actually took some action and from what you gave it gave me is just a piece of content yeah i love that those are my favorite emails to get that's so cool because it's the kind of person who's going to read all the way through my book um or even you know listen all the way through this interview or whatever those are my kind of people you know and so i love hearing from people like that they're often kindreds and i love especially when you know i get an email from somebody saying you know hi i live in Sri Lanka, and I just read your book, and I like it. Then, you know, someday when I'm traveling through Sri Lanka, I'll often end up meeting that person. So I, I tend to do that whenever I travel, as I end up meeting people that have reached out to me at some point. In fact, um, I, the guy that's working for me now in in Brussels, um, I, I moved my book publishing company to Brussels, and my sole employee of Woodegg, my book publishing company, is just somebody that reached out to me because he listened to an interview I did and liked it and reached out and we just got talking. He was a cool dude. I met with him in Brussels and I hired him. Yeah, there's something about like the online world that it's no longer scary to meet people. Yeah, the stigma, love that. The stigma of meeting someone through a network is no longer there like it was you know, when the internet was younger in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, which is wonderful because it's like the accessibility of yourself and just reaching out to people IRL in real life. Um, for those who don't know what IRL means, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And the, mm. the connections people have online are, it's like when you meet someone face to face that they actually exist is there's something about that. That's just irreplaceable. Yeah. Love it. And so when you hear from strangers, like one thing that I love about like the, uh, Mark Cuban, you know, he's an entrepreneur and he owns the Dallas Mavericks is I remember early on in his career, he said that he answers most every email he gets. Yeah. And it could be just one word. It could be a paragraph. It could be a no thank you. Um, but there's something about, you know, relating to people that reach out randomly and in a way that they've, they feel like they maybe know you a little bit more because you put yourself out there like you talk about before. Like, what's it like when you, when you respond to people and have some sort of connection with someone that you've never met that ultimately it helps you build your team. But there's something about that. Like, how do you describe that feeling? Well, I think it's the most rewarding part of an email inbox that if it's just anonymous, um, if you're just getting you know, anonymous cold things, 
then your your email inbox is not a very fun place. But when it's people that are actually kind of reaching out, um, asking questions, no, no, I, I enjoy it. So I think the point is, is that everyone gets to live up to their own values. Like we all have different values, right? So for example, um, Tim Ferriss and I are similar in many ways, but he just decided early on to be inaccessible. Like you can't reach him by design. Um, that's just something that he just decided was an important value to him up front is that being accessible is not that valuable to him and being uninterrupted is very valuable. So I know that feeling and it's tempting and I could do that. Like I understand it. Um, as another example, Ramit Sethi and I are similar in many ways, but he just decided to be tough. Like he's really kind of mean and hard on people. So people do contact him and he often kind of like lash back at them. <laughs> and, and I know that feeling and it's tempting. I could do that, but he's doing it to be helpful because he feels that people often aren't hard enough on themselves uh, or he feels that their friends are often too uh, wishy-washy or cushy or just saying yes to everything. So he feels that it's important for him to be tough on people. So he's kind of mean to people that contact him. But ultimately, I think the public persona that works well for me is to be nice, to be accessible. And I enjoy answering people's questions. I mean, to be fair, I don't, I don't have email on my phone. So like we all draw our boundaries where we want. So I don't let emails interrupt me they just kind of they queue up on my computer and then every couple days i make a pot of tea and i put aside some time and i just enjoy getting random questions from the world and putting aside time to think of them and sometimes they're really inspiring a lot of the articles i've posted on my site and things that even went into the book were inspired by people's questions that's great you're answering they have a problem or a question and you give a a result or an answer and other people can learn, and obviously there's a demand for the content already. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, isn't that the, getting back to, you know, if you take a business angle to that, that's the gist of what being an entrepreneur is. Like, first you need to know what the world needs. You don't just have some vision go out into the world and trying to push your vision on the world. Ideally, you um, make things that people are asking you to make. Exactly. I love, I, I, my book is in a Google Doc right now, and I have 40 people who are friends or listeners of the podcast that are helping me edit it nice. and making recommendations and telling me this sucks or you need an infographic here or I don't get this part or you you made a silly punctuation error. And before I hire a professional editor, this is a much better data set of people who actually are invested in me to yeah. make a better product in the end. And it's this whole collaborative ongoing effort of people like that think they can just create something and that there's this romanticized, like, oh, I've been slaving away or in my garage by myself making a podcast or, <laughs> you know, making a, creating in a silo is the worst thing you can do because oftentimes, like, if the old phrase, you know, if a tree falls in the wood, it does it, if uh, the tree, if a tree falls in the wood, what am I saying here? You know, that's, you know, the phrase. <laughs> falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it. Did it make a sound? Yeah. I grew up in Iowa. I say woods. So I think forest is a difficult, uh, <laughs> wait for me to think, but, uh. Yeah, I mean, does it make a sound? And oftentimes, if you make something in a vacuum, you often go unnoticed because there's no product feedback in advance of you launching whatever your idea is. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I did the same thing, by the way, my my book, that Anything You Want book. I had 99 editors. I, I emailed a mailing list, and the first 99 people that replied became editors of the book, and they all got a big thank you at the end of the book, and it was really cool. That's exactly what I'm doing, totally. And it's fun, and it makes me more confident in the book. So, and people feel like they have ownership, you know. Yeah. And a lot of traditional media people I've told that to said, "But won't people not buy your book because they've already read the book?" <laughs> yeah, right. Those ninety nine people, I'm right? Like, that yeah. was your. That was your only audience. You're in trouble <laughs> yeah. anyway. I I think I really loved this book from I think it was around two thousand seven. There was a brilliant book called The Wisdom of Crowds. It is so good. There's a similar one. It's called Wikinomics. Oh, yeah. On the same subject. And both of them absolutely brilliant about example after example of how a collect, a diverse group of individuals is smarter than any one individual in the group. And even though we, I can say that to you right now and you can say, well, yes, of course, we still tend to do things uh, 
that go against that fact. Like, for example, why is it that companies often have one CEO? If we know that a diverse group of people is smarter than any one person, well, then shouldn't a diverse group of people be the CEO of a company? You know, and why do we often have an editor? We hire one editor to edit the book. Why shouldn't it be 99 people editing the book? Wouldn't they be a better editor combined than one person? Yeah. So I, I love extrapolating that idea into other aspects. And there's uh, something about building your product. You need a community of some sorts, whether it's five people or 99 people or a thousand to, to make it better because if they're your ultimate customer, you want to make them happy as much as possible. And yeah. moreover, giving ownership over your ideas to other people. Like if I support a Kickstarter or I help with someone's product to give feedback to make it better, a tech product, I'm more likely to share that with my friends because I feel like mm-hmm. I've built it. And the more you hand over the keys to the car to help collectively get wisdom from a crowd, the greater propensity it is for them to actually gal- the, to galvanize a group of people that you know want to be part of the movement. Right. Yeah, well and, put. And I love it. Yeah, so there's this whole book. You're going to love the book. Um, but I have to talk about your TED Talk only in the context of your video is, you know, is all about movements, and it's. I'll put it in the descriptions if you haven't seen it. What what is the title of the video? Um, how to start a movement? Yeah, how to start a movement or leadership lessons learned from a dancing guy? Yeah, so there's a, a great context here because I've have a chapter in my book about this guy Bernie Burns and a company called Rooster Teeth, and <laughs> they do machinima videos for gamers. And they started the company 10 years ago in Austin, Texas. And they've since crowdfunded you know, $2.5 million to make it their independent movie of their dream. And they have a 20-person gamer conference in Austin, Texas called RTX for YouTube fans of games. And so mm-hmm. Bernie was on the, my first guest on the podcast. In a way, he gave me some social proof and credibility. And I got so many more guests because of him. And just he validated the, the podcast and the book idea. So I saw him at this YouTube conference called VidCon where 20,000 YouTube fans and industry people from entertainment and media and the parents of these kids come into this YouTube conference and get selfies with talent. And it's this amazing carnival that I love, started by Hank and John Green. And Bernie and I were talking there, and he actually told me that he loved that video. Ah, how cool. And I have a chapter about him in the book. And so I asked him for you know why? And he said that with his Kickstarter and his, or I'm sorry, his Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign, he had I think twelve thousand backers for two point something million dollars, and he said those were his first followers. Those mm-hmm. were the key catalysts, and it, in the end, it's almost like that's who his community is for, because they're the ones that are going to spread the message to their their friends and their communities. Right, yeah. And it resonated. He was telling me this at VidCon. And I was like, oh, wow, that's true. And to hear it from that perspective, it was different because they've had such great success. But their true fans, these really ardent supporters, are the ones that have catalyzed and given him legitimacy to create their movement. Love it. So what? Uh, what's it like now giving a successful TED Talk and having people like you're dancing on stage um, at the end of the video. Um, well, okay. Go back a bit. When I sold CD Baby, I thought that my gravestone would say, he made CD Baby and that's about it. Right? Like it was a little depressing. Like selling your company is, it's a weird thing. It's a little bit like graduating college and getting a divorce at the same time you know it's there's it's kind of people congratulate you but there's something kind of sad about it you know um and i really felt like wow that was such a huge success that i think i've peaked and it's a weird feeling that i think most of us will get at some point in life when you admit that your biggest success is behind you that was it you will probably never be that successful again for some people Um, that's a, a crisis inducing yeah, well, it was kind of for me. I mean, I was kind of depressed. I wanted to disappear. I mean, a lot of it was actually triggered by the fact that 
like I mentioned earlier, I had 85 employees that were mostly all directly reporting to me and things got really nasty in the last year. Like they, my employees just decided that they wanted to take the company in a different direction from me and just decided that I was the cause of all their problems and just focused all of their anger on me. And it was, it was really, really tough. And, and so once I sold the company, I just wanted to disappear. Like I seriously looked into legally changing my name and disappearing and just going off the grid and just being gone. Like I thought I would just take my money and lay low and go do some open source programming until I die. But then because I'd only ever been in music, when I was watching TED Talks, I would get really inspired and I wanted to be in that crowd. Like I went, wow, like that would be so cool to be surrounded by intellectual writers and achievers. So I made it a goal of mine to get invited to speak at TED. That's like the, I mean, that's the, real the beauty TED. of the TED Talk, right? Is they, there's something about them that you want to be in that crowd. Yeah. And they did a remarkable well, job of branding themselves as this intellectual elite that yeah. everyone in some way either can't stand or wants to join. There's no middle ground. <laughs> right. Well, what's funny is for me, it's like I don't really watch TED Talks anymore. I haven't really watched any since like 2009, I guess. But uh, but at the time, like in 2008, right as I was selling my company, to me, this was really aspirational. Like I watched this and just like you said, yeah, I I wanted to be a part of that crowd. So I threw myself into it. I'd, like this was a good goal for me. Like for the first time in you know, a year or so, I wasn't depressed and wanting to disappear. I suddenly wanted to step up and take responsibility for my uh, existing fame and perhaps even get more famous and do, you know, be more public. And again, like you, you asked about early at the beginning of the call, um, doing things publicly and putting your ass online and writing articles instead of laying low, you know? So I worked for six hours a day on writing short, punchy, surprising, intellectually stimulating articles. And I applied to TED multiple times and I finally got in, not just once, but at three different TED conferences in a row. Uh, and this is before TEDx. So these, these weren't TEDx these conferences. Were the, these were the big leagues. The big, big. Like there's, there's big. Al Gore sitting in the front row in front of me, you know. So, um, so I did these TED Talks. And now what's funny is that more people know me from my TED Talks than they do from CD Baby. And in fact, for a few years after TED, one of the most common questions I would get from people is, like, so what did you do before TED? <laughs> And to me, that was like this wonderful <laughs> feeling. You know, it's so nice to know that we can change our career. Like here I thought, thought I had peaked and it's like, wow, I did it. I made a change. And so I think it was really encouraging to know that we can always find a path that goes up. Uh, but you spent considerable time focused on that goal. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, any worthy reward takes work. You know, I mean, yeah, it wasn't. Just luck. What was your answer to that question about what you did before, Ted? <laughs> oh, I just, yeah, I had a company called CD Baby, and they'd say, oh, CD what? <laughs> you know, yeah. Nobody'd heard of it. Uh, I get that a lot now, too. Like, it's in those circles I was in 10 years ago, it felt like CD Baby was a big deal. And now, in hindsight, I feel like almost to nobody I know has ever heard of it, you know? Well, did the TED Talk in, take your career in a different direction that you... <laughs> that you reinvented part of what you were doing and creating beforehand? Well, it could have. I mean, so literally, you know, the hour after I got off stage, after delivering that talk about the first follower leadership lessons from a dancing guy, um, I had like five different agents come up to me at the conference saying, oh my God, you know, we'll sign you to a book deal right now. Or, hey, we'd like to represent you in the corporate speaking circuit. You know, we think this could be a great talk for you to go deliver at these Fortune 500 companies. So I could have taken my career that direction. I could have gone and been a public speaker for companies talking about leadership. And I could have written a book called The First Follower, Lessons Learned from a Dancing Guy. You know, I could have gone that path. But I looked at it. And it just wasn't appealing. I, I just don't have that much to say about leadership. It was just a three-minute talk, you know. Um, I'm no leadership expert. I just made an entertaining three-minute talk. So I said thank you but no to all those people that wanted me to speak at their companies and all that. And um, Yeah, instead I, I was more inspired by the stuff we talked about earlier about traveling the world and seeing the world from a different point of view and feeling somewhat retired. Like say, for example, the only reason you would fly off to uh, – Minnesota to speak at some 
pharmaceutical company about leadership, you'd be doing it for the money, right? You, unless you really wanted to see Minnesota. Yeah, it's a, ca- um, it's a money grab. Right. So like we talked about at the very beginning of the call that I had to remind myself that I'm not doing anything for the money anymore. It would be completely irrational and stupid to do something for the money since I've got more than I'm going to spend. So yeah, the idea of speaking to corporations, no price could get me to do it. But you said it a little a bit earlier in this TED context that you at one point wanted to maybe become more well-known in your yeah. industry. What was right. Some of the writing to me is the better way of doing that. So okay. I think I love the fact it makes me deeply happy when say, for example, I go on to Twitter a couple times a week and I search for mentions, you know, the at Sivers, my Twitter handle, and I see who's mentioning me. And it's so nice to see when like people are referencing an article that I've written or two different people are telling each other about it. Like, Hey dude, you need to read this article. And, Somebody says, oh, you know, if you, if you think that, you should read this article by Derek Sivers. And that's a really nice feeling to, to be a part of the conversation that's going on out there. You know, like that to me, that's more success to me than making 100 grand speaking at Fortune 500 companies, you know? And so then you feel like in the context of the internet, when you get someone sharing and tweeting out at Sivers, uh, what like what what kind of feeling do you get like without thinking you're narcissistic or like how do you stay grounded if you're doing this <laughs> okay oh, actually okay if a ted talk isn't enough you know because i think that's a peak and especially in the context of of the era where you did that ted talk yes because now yeah. the tedx events have almost franchised out the model so right many the barrier to entry is a lot lower and it was a very big deal and was that a ted talk that was up uh, in Northern California? Yeah, that was at their main... Yeah. Well, actually, it was when they moved it to Long Beach. But yeah, it was at the but big like, giant... Long Beach, that was like, you know, celebrities were starting to go there and people like Robin Williams would show up and... Yep. And oh, so, dude, that, that's what was so nervous. Like, I may seem calm on stage like when you watch the video, but inside, man, I thought I was having a heart attack because right in front of me, right there in the first 10 rows, I mean, there's Bill Gates, there's Al Gore, there's the dude that invented Unix, there's the two founders of Google, there's, you know, like... All the movie stars and intellectuals and Nobel Prize winners are sitting there watching me give my talk. You know, better be fucking good. <laughs> it was the ultimate pressure, man. It was terrifying. But um, anyway, um, so yeah. So you're saying I've peaked again? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, I'm saying, yeah. I'm wondering, like, how do you embrace yourself as a creator? Oh, right. Without getting narciss- too far ahead of yourself, where because oftentimes I work in the startup world. I've done. I've had a lot of CEOs and executives that believe that to use a biggie smalls quote that I don't ever quote is never get high on your own supply. And okay. How do you not do that? It's, or maybe you do, but okay. Something, something happened to me in 2007 that was really, um, tragic, but useful (laughs) is that it was in the tech world. I had switched my programming technology from PHP to Ruby on Rails in 2004. And I was one of the the first guys to switch to this new technology called Ruby on Rails. And I did it very loudly. So a lot of people held me up as an example of why their company should use Ruby on Rails. And then in 2007, I very quietly admitted that I gave up on Ruby on Rails after two and a half years and I switched back to PHP. And a few people asked me why. And I kept answering them by email. So finally, on a quiet little blog that I had that nobody ever read, it was like on a tech site called O'Reilly.com, I had a little quiet tech blog where I would talk about SQL commands and stuff like that. Uh, I said, here's the seven reasons why I switched uh, back to PHP after two years on Ruby and Rails. And it was actually literally on my birthday. I posted it at night on my birthday after I got home from dinner with a friend. I posted that article and I went to sleep. And Ryan, when I woke up in the morning, there were hundreds and hundreds of comments calling me the biggest idiot in the world. Like it made top page news on all of these tech sites that all of my peers and people I admire read. And here I am, top page news being held up as a raging idiot for, you know, what an idiot to do this stupid thing. And obviously this guy's a 
stupid asshole. Like this, people like him are the problem with the world. And like all these scathing comments, just hundreds of them saying all these things about me. Because you switched back first, to a PhD. Well, what is it? Why did they get mad at you then? Um, it's a little bit like religion. Um, in the you programming sl- world, if you out? insult somebody's programming language, okay. no, it was more like just people have their favorite programming language and they think that theirs is the best and the other ones suck. So if you say that you're using a different one than them or that you've decided not to use the one they're using, it's just like if like you've just said that Christianity sucks, you know, it, it's you're going to get people getting so upset. So it's like gangster mentality, like PC versus Mac or people yeah, that, that take their thing, Android right? phone a little too seriously versus an Apple <laughs> device. Right. So the, for the first couple minutes, I was upset. But then almost right away, something snapped in me where I said, you know what? Like, all these people saying all these negative things about me, like, they have no idea who I am. They have no idea. Like, they don't know my context. They don't know the real me. They're just responding to something that has to do with them. This actually isn't about me at all. In fact, like, if I was to make a, a visual you know, a representation of this, it felt like they were attacking some kind of cardboard cutout cartoon version of me over here that's not the real me <laughs> and so that was the day man my the day after my birthday in 2007 that i disconnected from my public persona that now anything i do publicly is not the real me um it's even th- so whether it's people saying nice things or mean things i feel everybody's talking about this cardboard cutout over here like the public you is not the real you you're showing one side of yourself to the world and people that are responding to it don't know the real you they're just responding to the bit of content you know words or music or something that you've put out into the world they're just responding to that not to you as a person so no i don't believe i don't take to heart any of the praise or criticism so is this why you do less talks or interviews because of just trying to keep your sanity as to the internet you versus the real you? Um, no, that's more just a matter of time. Like I, um, because I'm not pitching anything. Um, the main reason people do interviews is to pitch something or they want to be more famous. Like I don't want to be more famous and I'm not pitching anything. So the main reason I do interviews is honestly, I just like the challenge of getting difficult and interesting questions, which makes me think of things that I ordinarily wouldn't unless somebody asked me a difficult or interesting question. So that's the main reason I do them. But yeah, most of the time I'm just, I'm lost in my work. I'm not really very conversational. So um, yeah, that's the main, it's not really having to do with the public criticism, but no. So to answer your question about like, no, when I search, you brought this up because I mentioned searching for at Sivers on Twitter. Well, everyone does it, so it's it's completely yeah, it's right. why we use media like social medias and likes and favorites and at replies. Yeah, um, so it's nice to see. It's also actually comments. All that I just said, by the way, um, I think what's really useful, by the way, is when you post one idea at a time on your blog. Um, really nice to see the comments where people might have misunderstood it. So say, for example, the thing we talked about earlier of me trying to compress uh, the wisdom I've learned from the last 225 books I've read, how to compress those into advice and directive into others for others. When you read the article about that and you look at the comments below, it turns out that everybody thought I was talking about doing cliff notes. They thought I was going to compress each book into a succinct version of that book. And I realized I'd been completely misunderstood. So something in the way I described it must have been wrong. It was my fault that I I must have described it wrong because I never intended to compress individual books. I just meant how can I take everything I've learned in the last eight years and turn it into advice? So I think comments can be really useful to let you know when you're not being clear. And so what – just talking about books and content and what what are you watching on TV now? Do you watch much TV? Oh, I haven't since I was 18. No, I, I, dude, I never watch anything. I don't, I've actually never listened to a podcast. I've, I haven't watched a TED talk since 2009. I, I've never, I haven't seen any TV shows that I hear about. Like, I just, I never, I just realized recently somebody asked me, like, oh, did you ever, did you watch this TED talk? Oh, have you seen this movie? Did you see this TV show? And I had to think about it for a minute and I realized, well, I just, I don't watch anything. I never watch videos. 
I, I don't listen to anything. I don't watch anything. I just spend all of my time reading and writing, hanging out with my kid. And so w- with your friends, then what do you talk about? Because that's all I talk about with my friends is <laughs> what TV. <laughs> no, not TV, but like what I'm reading is a big part of it. Or like the shared, the TV is a great shared community thing with your, your friends or your people like my wife, essentially. I don't know what we would do after 8 p.m. when our kid goes to sleep if we didn't have, <laughs> you know, Justified or Orange is the New Black to watch. Funny. Um I think most of my friends right now are talking about, uh, God, we actually end up just talking about like personal romance. Everybody I know is like single and dating and sharing their, their stories and their heartbreaks and that stuff. Or we talk about career stuff or just life or I don't know. It's like Seinfeld. You just talk about life. Yeah. Just what you're catching yourself up and whatnot. I'm actually, did you see what I just did there. I made a TV reference. You proud yeah. of me? Yeah. I think that was really subtle that I didn't even pick up on it. Um, cause I thought, you know, you watch TV in the era when Seinfeld was on. <laughs> Actually, our mutual friend Meredith and I used to watch Seinfeld every night at 11 when it was in syndication. We both lived in New York city and every night it was on from 11 to 1130. We'd watch at 11 and call each other at 1130 to talk about it. Back when there was the thing called the water cooler at work and <laughs> yeah, there was nothing the called social media. Um, so I'm actually looking in, I have a few, couple more questions and we'll wrap up, but I, had a guy who uh, is a friend who listens to the show, and he um, said he met you in Singapore, and he was doing something called Mopix, and then he ended up uh, bought he bought Film Baby from CD Baby, and just randomly he emailed me that. But his question was, uh, what type of stuff have you learned through uh, your your professional of you know working at cd baby through 38 that you feel like you're hoping to instill in your child he, he's a recent father is what he said Ooh, wow um, it's, it's deep well first by the way you know it's funny i was actually a part owner of film baby and nobody ever because i never talked to the because we had like bad blood like i never heard from the old people so I was actually owed some money from a film baby sale. Nobody ever reached out to me. Well, so he, uh, he said he never emailed you to tell you that because he thought it was funny because he had met you randomly in Singapore. And then he said, you know what? I wanted to always follow up with him <laughs> and tell him <laughs> that I bought film baby. Well, tell him to email now. I guess he's probably listening. Okay. So what did I learn <laughs> from, I think the only parenting, uh, thing I've learned so far, um, is a, is about being undistracted, right? Like if I would have tried to have a kid 10 years ago when I was in the middle of running my company, I would have been a terrible dad. But I love the fact that I'm just in this phase of my life where I can just, every time I'm with him, I just completely shut everything off. Phone is off, computer is off. I, like I don't just like put it to sleep. I shut it down, I power it down. And no clocks, no schedule. I, I just don't even bring the phone with me. I don't want to know what time it is. It's it's the time is whatever he tells me it is. You know, if he says it's it's time to eat, then it's time to eat. If he says it's time to go to sleep, then it's time to go to sleep. But like, but not until then, you know. So I don't I don't do this thing of trying to force a kid into uh, the hour hand on the clock schedule that is kind of more of an adult construction. You know, I think that's to me the biggest friction that I've heard my parent friends say is the hardest part about parenting is when they're trying to force their kids into an adult schedule. So, um, I mean, granted my kid is three, so, uh, like, Oh, it's eight o'clock time for bed. Right. Why? Because it's eight. And I said, so. (laughs) yeah, I don't, I don't do that. Um, So (laughs) I don't, I don't think lessons learned from running CD baby apply to parenting at all. I haven't found any crossover there at all. Would you want your your son to be uh, either a musician or an entrepreneur? I have no expectations for him at all. Whatever he could be a ballerina or a grave digger for all I care. I, like what, whatever he wants to do is fine with me. It's that's totally up to him. I have no expectations for that. And that's like a good parent. That's a trick question. I was seeing if you were a good. No. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and then uh, the final question is when you know you look at where you are in your early forties. And where you started out with CD Baby or in college or in New York City watching Seinfeld with Meredith and then or calling her afterwards. Um, 
like you've you feel like it sounds like you've reached a lot of different journeys that have taken you to starting things and closing them out and do you think that's important for people where you start a company you sell it you move on you you know you travel you end your trip you you move to New Zealand and you're living this phase of your life like you seem to have a very philosophical viewpoint of the phasing of life do you think that it's important for people to look at themselves in like smaller chunks versus trying to think where they want to go in 20 years and where they want to be? No, I, I, I try not to be prescriptive with this stuff that, you know, if you're asking me questions about me, I'll say, okay, this is, this is me. This is my preference, but I'm not saying that anybody else should. It's more about being honest about what really works for you. Like, noticing when you're thriving, when you're at your best, when you're happiest, um, and noticing what drains you. Um, so for example, um, I, I call this the compass in your gut. I think that there's like a compass in your gut that points two directions. Is this exciting me or is this draining me? And if something is draining your energy, you need to stop doing that thing right away because nothing's worth that. You know, I saw that so many times in the music business that musicians would get into music because they loved, say, playing the drums, for example. They loved pounding on the drums. Like, this is their big love. And somebody said, well, you know, if you're going to get into the music business, you need to read this book about contract negotiation. And you need to read this book written by this lawyer about how to negotiate a record contract. And you need to understand cross-collateralization and royalty agreements. And pretty soon, this person has lost all interest in playing drums because he said, ah, never mind. <laughs> you know? So yeah. I think we each need to be honest about what works for us. So um, a friend of mine, same age, grew up in the same place. We have almost the exact same upbringing, but she just wants to stay in one place for her whole life. She, she bought a house about eight years ago and she has said many times, and so has her husband, that like, this is the house they're going to die in. This is it. They are done. They're never moving. This is their place. And she just wants to stay in one place her whole life. She has no interest in travel. Uh, I don't know. Even when I tell her the amazing things about Asia, she just rolls her eyes and says like, I have no interest in ever going there. She has no interest in ever traveling, doesn't want to just. And so I'm not going to say that somebody like that should start thinking of their life in short little chunks and making lots of changes because no, she just wants to do one thing until she dies and stay in one place. And that's just her. Um, so yeah, other people find their calling and they just want to do that for their whole life. Um, they want to just keep deepening their passion. Say, you know, like look at uh, Stephen King writing novels He's just lived in Maine and continued to write novels and novels and novels and novels his whole life. Um, he doesn't switch gears and I mean, unless you count like each novel is switching gears in a minor way. But okay, so the point is you just need to pay attention to what works for you. Right? So some people just want to do one thing for their whole life. I think of Stephen King writing novels his whole life. Um, and other people, I, I actually, I really like the... Um, the musician comparison, if you look at some music careers, like look at ACDC versus David Bowie, right? Like ACDC has done the exact same thing since 1974. And David Bowie, for example, has been doing very different things since then. He'll do industrial for a while. Now he's Ziggy Stardust. Now he's this kind of blonde-haired soul singer. Now he's this. And I think for me, I just, I gravitated towards that approach. I just like the challenge of changing things up, but each to each his own. Well, so do you think uh, final question is then you, you know, talking about putting yourself out there and creating content, like you're writing on the web, for example, I have a podcast and some people feel like that's what they want to do to challenge themselves. Others feel like it's not part of their routine, so they, they don't need to do so. Um, but do you think in this era since everyone's using online media in some capacity to publish their ideas that people need to do that in not just a flat yes or no, but do you have to put yourself out there online now in the business world? Well, if you're not online, it's like you don't exist. Yeah. 
you know, um, there, there's a great book called Show Your Work by Austin Kleon that um, says, you know, people often talk about networking, like going to networking parties and meeting people. He said, but, you know, instead, how about you just use the network? Like, do your, show your work online. Share what you're focused on. Share your work on the network, meaning the net, the internet. Like, that's your network. That's where your work reaches out. So, um, yeah, I do think that a lot of people have a resistance to that idea because it's scary to put your ass on the line and put yourself out there for criticism. But it's ultimately you have to ask yourself this question. What's more useful to other people? Is it more useful for me to be hiding in my bedroom and not sharing anything I'm doing? Or is it more useful for me to be putting everything out there in the public? And you know the answer. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hide. In your, no, don't, don't hide. Um, get out of the closet <laughs> and start publishing stuff. Um, yeah. Cool. Thanks for coming on. That was Derek Sivers. Check out his website, Sivers.org. S-I-V-E-R-S dot org. It's always fun talking with someone like Derek. He was all the way in New Zealand. He's a, not an easy guy to track down. So super excited that he came on to talk about anything you want and breaking bad habits as well as you know giving people opportunities to not fall into traps and realizing that all of us have control over our lives and business. And obviously there's repercussions and there's consequences if we don't follow the rules, but really in the end, we can do what we want and we have freedom. So inspiring guy, super excited. He'll be mentioned in my book and uh, can't wait to ship that soon. So looking like the book launch date is uh, is mid-March after I go speak at South by Southwest. So if anyone's going down to South by this year, I'll be there for uh, four days. Feel free to hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com for info. We'll be doing a meetup and a book event while we're down there. So anyway, heading over to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot with Julia, who's now two and a half. Mm-hmm.